0: bound when the voice feels right and when it flows naturally then uh, maybe that's one to stick with but uh, it's only later that i dawned on me that this could be the voice in your head the thing that survives your death this could be what the what the soul sounds like and so on but that stuff came later
1: welcome to books and beyond with bound i'm tara khandelwal i'm
2: michelle decosta
1: and in this podcast we uncover the stories behind some of the best written books of our time. And find out how these books
2: reflect our lives and our society today.
1: So tune in every Wednesday to enter a whole new world with a new author and a new idea.
2: Yes, and after 3 years and 2 million listens, we are back with a power-packed season 5.
1: With hard-hitting questions and life-changing books.
2: So let's dive in. We are extremely thrilled to speak to Booker Prize winner, Shehan Karuna today, about his book, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida. See, because his win is our win, right? It's every South Asian writer's win. So the book is not only set in Sri Lanka, but it, it's a very humorous way of looking at death and politics. So the book is actually set in a visa office in the afterlife, right? Who would have imagined, right, Tara? I thought all the immigration stuff would have ended with this life.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And a book, you know, uh, that two years ago found it difficult to find an international publisher is making every head turn. Um, And we're going to find out about that soon. But before the interview, we wanted to discuss what we thought about the book. So Michelle, what are your thoughts about this book?
2: I have so many thoughts running in my head right now, Tara. But on the top of my head, I would say two things, okay? So two things really worked for me. One is, you know, I'm a very big fan of second-person narration. And the moment I came to know the book is in second-person, I had to read it. Um, So for me, the voice of Mali Almeida stood out, right? Because it's written in second-person. And another thing is the humor, right? Because I've read books set in Sri Lanka about the Sri Lankan war. And it's, it's usually written in a very serious tone. But I felt, you know, Shehan has this very witty, a uh, humorous way of looking at death. So for me, these two things work. But what about you?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. You know, like sort of like that black humor, that like dark humor. Um, I really am a fan of that and it's very difficult to do that right, you know, because after all this is we're talking about death, we're talking about a political strife, um, all of these things, right. And sort of uh, to bring that alive in that sort of black humor way that dry humor is very interesting. And you know, uh, what I read in the interview, and I want to ask him is that the second person voice, Mm. actually, uh, he conceived of it because it's sort of the voice that you use to talk to yourself you know Ah, it's like exactly like
2: like the inner monologue yeah it's like
1: it's like oh you should go to the gym today you know yeah yeah it's
2: it's, kind of like these new year resolutions we said no like you should do this you should do that
1: Yeah. yeah so very interesting way of also thinking about it but what i think you know like drew me it actually was the whole, um, you know, the way that it won the Booker uh, Mm. and also the fact that, you know, it didn't find a publisher. The book was first, it has a very interesting history, this book, because it was, yeah, it was first published as uh, Chats with the Dead. The name was called Chats with the Dead. I also read that, you know, every year, of course, you know, the jury of the Booker Prize changes and, um, you know, that obviously determines the tastes of the winners. Uh, And I found this a very refreshing take because I don't see a lot of speculative uh, novels with speculative elements. Um, You know, I haven't seen at least from my limited knowledge, a lot of novels, speculative uh, elements doing so, so well and getting mainstream. So that for me was, was a very interesting part of it.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's a very interesting observation actually, Tara. You're right. Because, you know, sometimes literary works kind of, you know, uh tend to not look at uh speculative work. And and I think for me also that 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 was something refreshing. You know, the fact that ghosts or the fact that afterlife could make it to the booker, that was it was really fun. I mean, it was an entertaining way of looking at death, right? Like I, I felt that was very refreshing. Actually, you know, th- the fact that it was first published, Chats with the Dead, I like that better, you know. So the first time I came across that title, I said, Wow, like you know, it's so direct, right? Like you know what you're in for. But when I read the seven moons of Made a, hmm, you know it was, it was kind of like a uh, uh, I would say
1: like a riddle to solve but what about you that's actually but that's why I liked it you know ah. uh, and we're gonna ask him about this obviously but uh, it actually made me grab the book because you know it, it signifies that it's so much about this world building and it's so like you mm. know out of this world also um, you know so that's what I really like and another thing that I really liked if we talk about what we liked, is that um, in the visa office, right, like he's Mm. meeting sort of like all of these different characters. And there are some people that like, he knows from his past life that he doesn't like. Yeah, you know, he even mentions like, um, people that sort of like some like aunties that he comes across. So there's a whole (laughs) milieu of characters. And it's almost like its own cosmos, right? And I found that sort of very interesting. And then he also comes across some very, very problematic creatures in this, you know, visa office and afterlife uh, situation. Yeah. So so that, you know, those that characterization uh, and that world I found was very interesting. And it it the title actually gave it a little a little bit of sort of like this poetic kind of feel,
2: especially the beautiful cover um so Mm. so that's why i liked it awesome okay yeah so i think we have so much to ask him you know why don't we just get into the interview and ask him all these tara
1: Yeah, I can't believe that we got to speak about this. And um, it also makes me wonder what all uh, of you, our listeners, think of the book. So if you, uh, you know, we'd love to know your thoughts. Which title did you like the best? And you can tag us at Bound India and share with us. But uh, let's just let's get into the afterlife now with Shehan. (laughs) Yes. Thank you so much, Shehan, for being on Books and Beyond today. Uh, We absolutely loved your booker-winning book, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida. You know, the world that you carved was so interesting. Your book took almost seven years to write. And the protagonist, Mali Almeida, wakes up in the afterlife, which is a visa office. And I found that so funny. You said that, you know, even though the book took so long to write, and it had many false starts, uh, the one thing that remained is the protagonist. So we wanted to know, you know, what were you doing when he came to you? Can you pinpoint how he took shape?
0: He came to me as a minor character in another book. And that tends to happen a lot. And that's why you should never be afraid of a bad first draft because there may be a minor character lurking in there. There was a book called Devil Dance, which I tried writing about seven years ago. And, um, yeah, it was a slasher horror about a bus of aid workers traveling around the tsunami coast. I couldn't make it work. It sounds better than it actually was. But there was a ghost on the bus and the ghost was called Mali Almeida, who was the spirit of a dead war photographer. And in the end, there was not much salvageable from that draft. I couldn't quite make it work. But when I came back to it maybe a year later, this character just stood out for me. And I thought maybe we should try telling his story. And suddenly his story, the ghost wouldn't stop talking, but the ghost was speaking also to me in the second person. So that's a unique thing when those things happen. And uh, it evolved from there. I mean, I I hung a lot. He went through many iterations and many different character traits, but I think that's where it started. I was just interested in what a dead war photographer in 89 would have to say. And it turned out he had quite a lot to say. (laughs)
2: Yeah. And in fact, you know, the most interesting bit of the novel was the second person narration itself. Like I am really drawn to second person, you know, I've been following works of Mohsin Hamid and other writers, but you know, what I Mm. found really um, exciting was how experimental it was. How did you find the confidence to pull off second person in an entire novel?
0: Yeah. So it's a tricky thing because I've written a short story in the second person and that was quite a challenge. And yeah, the voice can get quite irritating and uh, it's it's difficult, but it was also a technical problem that I was trying to solve, because what does a disembodied voice, what does it sound like, what does a disembodied spirit look like? So that was my protagonist and who doesn't have a body. Uh, and so how do I describe them? How do I create their character? And I, I was grappling with and also with questions of what does the afterlife look like? Is it a place where all is revealed or is it like messy like a visa office? Uh, but I won't say a breakthrough because it took many months to come across this was that the voice in your head, I find, I don't know about other people's heads, but the voice in my head is in the second person. Mostly. It's almost like someone external, like a coach telling me, uh, you know, what I'm doing wrong or kind of uh, that's, so that felt natural. Uh, But also I think the main test is when I started writing in that voice, uh, Mali had plenty to say, whether it was Mali or not, you know, that's debated in the novel. What, does the voice in your head actually belong to you, or is it the past, or is it other influences? Um, what I did find out is that I had fifty pages in a couple of months, and they were mostly good pages. So I think that's the test: when the voice feels right and when it flows naturally, then uh, maybe that's one to stick with. But uh, it's only later that I dawned on me that this could be the voice in your head, the thing that survives your death. This could be what the what the soul sounds like, and so on. But that stuff came later.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I never thought of the second person, you know, being like a voice in your head. And now that you bring it up, I think all of us speak to ourselves in the second person, which is so fascinating. Oh, really? Um, I'm not
0: alone? Okay, I thought... Yeah, yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah, I do that too, you know. (laughs) So in the book, Mali asks the staff in the afterlife about what the light is, you know. They're all supposed to be moving towards the light. And he gets a different Mm -hmm. answer each time. Some mm. say heaven, some say rebirth, some say oblivion. So, I wanted to know, what does the light mean
2: to you?
0: Well, yeah, that, that would be telling, I suppose. And I, I'm not sure I even have an answer for that. The light was a good concept because I saw it repeated in many different faiths and theories. Even near-death experiences, which there have been scientific studies on. Every uh, survivor reports this idea of the light and having a familiar figure guiding you towards the light. And um, you get it in Judeo-Christian tradition. I've seen it in Eastern mythologies as well. So it was a useful symbol to use. I didn't think it was my place to explain what it was because the fact about the afterlife is no one knows. That's the, even the, the philosophers, the religious folk, the um, scientists, no one knows. So I didn't want to presume that I was going to offer my theory of what the light is. The main thing is it appears that there is the light out there. You know, wherever. So I think that's something we can take comfort in, and it and it appears to be a very comforting thing. Uh, though, if you uh, read or watched Cloud Atlas, you uh, may recall the fourth story where the light proves to be something much more sinister than what people presume. So, yeah. Sorry, I'm evading the answer, perhaps because I don't really have one. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, no, and I, I think you know, th- because the definition is so big, right? Because there are so many possibilities, I feel that's what made the book imaginative, right? Because it is a whodunit, it's a mystery, it's entertaining, right? And what I found the most interesting was that you don't often find ghosts in mainstream literary fiction, right? But I think your book has proved that any speculative element can gain mainstream acceptance if written well. You know, your book had a very tough competition at the book at this time, so. Mm. What according to you made it stand out, Shehan? You know, was it the ghost? You know, was it is is it because it's about the Sri Lankan war, the death, or or what do you think um, I would say makes it stand apart from other books?
0: Well, firstly, okay, you're right, it was a tremendous long list and a magnificent short list. I really felt, I mean, I was when I looked at the long list itself, I was firstly, you know, obviously delighted to be part of it. But it was the fact that there weren't any big names. You know, there wasn't Atwood or Rushdie on there. Few established writers, but relatively unknowns and such a range of different topics. Look, I also think there's a huge element of luck. I mean, Mali Almeida talks about luck and gambling and the odds all throughout it. I mean, I know previous juries. And also, actually, let me go to your first point, because I'm not sure that really is the case, because Lincoln in the Bardo... A talking ghost book won the Booker uh, yes. 2017, I yeah. believe, and um, and you know, sci-fi, The Blind Assassin. I think uh, even if you look at Ishigura, Never Let Never Let Me Go, the shortlisted. So I think speculative and Cloud Atlas, which I mentioned, have you know had, the Booker hasn't been shy of uh, shortlisting or even awarding those things. But I think, and I remember when Lincoln in the Bardo came out, I was struggling with this, and I was like, "Oh no!" So a talking ghost book won the Booker. So I guess now they're going to think that I copied this one. But uh, when I read George Saunders' masterpiece, I mean, I realized, as, "Yeah, this is this is a work of art," and I took inspiration because it's a very different book to Seven Moons. I went in there, even to the shortlist, knowing it's a one in six chance. These are all top quality books, and it could go any way. Uh, but there have been p- previous years where the judges have said, you know, we prefer realistic fiction, and uh, and there, or we prefer, you know, readable fiction, or we prefer this, and that's the thing the unique thing about the Booker—is that each judge uh, group of judges will set their own agenda. So, if it had come out. Perhaps even the previous couple of years where there seemed to be a lean towards more realistic fiction, maybe it wouldn't have even got long listed. But I think this year, it seemed the judges were quite brave and quite adventurous in, in their tastes. Um, and um, so, I mean, there was a number there was maps of our spectacular bodies, which is, a, I just read the synopsis that it was a point of view from the point of view of a, uh, a cancer by Maddie Mortimer. Um, I you know I thought that would be a sure contender. sadly didn't make the uh, the short list, but this is again, you've got to realize that when it comes to this level, it it is then it's it's like a casino. You don't know what conversations are happening behind closed doors and stuff. I think you know if you look at Glory, you no know, Violet Boulevard or the Trees, these are also very surreal experimental books um and but also and treacle walker for sure so it seemed like the judges taste was towards that direction i'm just glad that my dice threw up a six um could have been that sri lanka was in the news there there are a lot of factors and to speculate even going into it i know there was a lot of people there was betting sites there was you know booktubers book talkers ranking it i didn't get into any of that because i was like look grateful to be here anyone could win and let's not think too much about what would or wouldn't win. So I'm still, I'm still in that kind of mindset with it.
1: But I think it's one of the most fascinating uh, books that I've read in a while. Uh, you know, just the combination, as Michelle said, of uh, so many different elements coming together. Uh, and I love the uh, black humor. So what has been the impact of, you know, winning the prize for you? You've had an amazing journey as a writer. Uh, you know, you self-published your first book. The, the biggest prize in the world is now yours. So did your book sales go up? What has it been for you?
0: The first thing is that suddenly everyone wants to talk to you. So um, not just, I mean, not just <laughs> interviews, uh, uh, you know, agents, publishers, lawyers, um, industry. T- yeah, so suddenly, and you're used to like being locked in a room by yourself and not talking to anyone, not even your family or your friends for most of the the day or the week. So that's, that's a bit strange. Uh, but, you know, Obviously expected because you're right. This is as big as it gets in terms of literary awards. Um, yeah, and it does mean. I mean, Chinaman it got published widely. It attracted a cult following, and it, it did okay. But this nothing on this scale. Now suddenly this has been translated into many languages. Uh, yeah, it's selling well in in the markets. It's in in yeah UK, India, in the US. It's doing quite well. So yeah, it means that it'll be read by a wider readership. And I suppose my next book, and I guess I now have a writing career. You don't take that for granted, you know, when you've just written one book that you're going to have a career or that people are going to publish your subsequent books. And that's something you never take for granted. When you're a writer from Sri Lanka sitting in Colombo, you you don't expect your story to resonate with uh, someone in the U S or Russia or Brazil or so on. So, so this is like not something you even think about because you don't allow yourself to dream that, that big So, yeah, it does mean career wise. Yeah, it's a it's a huge game changer. Um, And yeah, these last few weeks and the next few months will be quite crazy with me being on planes and talking to people. Uh, But, you know, I'm hoping I can go back to normal, locking myself in that room and dreaming up another book. I think that's that's the fun part. And that's the part, you know, uh, we enjoy doing.
1: What's your next book on?
0: Uh, well, you know, it's bad, bad luck to talk about stuff that hasn't been written. I mean, that's, that's a lesson <laughs> I learned early on. You talk about it and uh, you end up not writing it. I mean, I can just say it will be about Sri Lanka, but it's a fascinating place with so many stories, but it may not, it not may not, it definitely doesn't have any ghosts or not that much violence or cricket or drunks, none of the topics of the first two books. And yeah, hopefully I get to finish it quicker than I, uh, I took this one.
2: Yeah, no, I actually read, uh, you know, your your most recent book, which is actually a short story collection. It's called The Birth Lottery. Um, And I had a lot of fun reading it. Like I've rarely come across such experimental short stories. And especially, you know, how you began, you know, so so it actually says that, you know, if you like certain kind of stories, why don't you read uh, these particular stories? So I would say, how did you come up with that idea? Like, Like, why, you know, give instructions to the reader before we begin? I found that really interesting
0: it's strange that's perhaps the oldest book it's been 20 years in the making it's the stuff that I write when I'm should be doing other stuff so when I I should be at my desk working on a pitch for the big meeting I'm fiddling with a short story same when I was writing Chinaman when I was writing Seven Moons I'd, I'd do about two or three stories a, a year and in the end it became this collection also these were stories that i submitted for awards that it didn't win anything and so that was the other thing i try and write in the style of that award then i wouldn't win i wouldn't you know get long-listed a commendation so then i'll write something completely different so yeah you're right there's a few science fiction stories in there there's a couple of stories by on text message um uh, i think yeah some online posts form a story and uh, during the pandemic that I finished Seven Moons. It was quite a kind time for writers, if I could say that, that, you know, we're locked in a house full of unread books and unfinished stories. So I know a lot of writers who got busy during those two years. And yeah, I was no exception. So finished Seven Moons and I got this collection together. and I just realized, yeah, how do I make this into a collection? Because I mean, apart from all being about Sri Lanka and all being by me, there was um, no real connection. There were variety of moods and styles. So this was just me categorizing it. Also, I'm a fan. I mean, I read Stephen King and Neil Gaiman and they their short story collections, they have a little preface and they they do a little analysis of their stories sometimes at the end. And that's sometimes as interesting as the story. So this was my take on that. It was just a note to myself, but then I thought, yeah, why not in the tradition of my heroes have a little preface uh, to my collection as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's another innovative book. Uh, a, a lot of interesting Sri Lankan writers are becoming global right now. Last year, Anuk Arut Pragasan he uh, wrote also about the Sri Lankan civil war and nominated for the Booker. So according to you, what does Sri Lankan literature lack right now?
0: You're right. There's no shortage of stories or shortage of voices either. I mean, I could, and I mentioned the many different, we have serious, uh, you know, literary writers like Anuk, uh, Arupragasam, Naomi Munavira, who have found success uh, uh, in the Western publishing world. Well, we've also got like young writers who are writing, Amanda uh, Yudanja, Vijay Ratna who are writing science fiction, genre fiction, and who kind of sidestep traditional publishing, but are quite are doing well. So yeah. And hopefully, this win will also inspire more people to keep writing uh, and taking it seriously. And and there's abundance of stories. What I do feel is perhaps there's there needs to be another wave of editors because that really is. I I benefited from having a wonderful editor, Natanya Jans, who who really we picked apart this manuscript and uh, got it to the standard that it was that went on to win the book. And I think, and there was hard work. It's a real skill. And I think we have editors, but I think maybe they are not compensated enough. It's not a viable profession. As important are the translators. So we have singular literature. We have Tamil literature and re- literature in English. They kind of work in their own silos. I'm not sure writers are it's aware of each other, have read each other's work. And I think, again, translation, it's it's an unsung a job and um, maybe not enough people are getting into it. And I think so, that's what I would like to see more. I'm actively working to have my books translated into single and Tamil. And I'd like to see a lot of those writers translated to English. And just so that we can have a whole class of editors who can bring these manuscripts to international standard, that level will help elevate all these stories and get the writers more prominence. Yeah,
2: definitely. I think the ecosystem is what makes um, literature of course, see, death is not an easy topic to write about, right? And you've written about it with so much humor. So I just kept thinking about, you know, how did you manage to do that? Well, I know that, you know, you've said that humor is a coping mechanism, right? For a lot of Sri Lankans, mm-hmm. you know, reading from the war, it's it's very difficult, right? And and probably humor is the only way to deal with it. But I want to know, you know, as a person, have you always been humorous? Or was there some kind of training that you required for this voice that you created in the book?
0: Well, yeah, you're right. I have spoken about the Sri Lankan character, the Sri Lankan smile, how we hide behind it, uh, and how we crack jokes even during grim times. So it's, I think it is part of the Sri Lankan spirit. Uh, also, I mean, I did uh, grow up, I finished college in New Zealand, and they also have a very sardonic kind of understated sense of humor. Um, so who knows uh, where? Uh, but I think that is my sensibility. We, when I write about a topic especially centering on Sri Lanka i tend to see the absurdity i see the tragedy and the comedy but i also see the absurdity of every situation uh, that sri lanka gets itself into so i think that informs the stuff that i write um even yeah you look at whether i write about cricket or writing about the war or the beliefs about the afterlife there is a certain amount of ridiculousness to it so i th- i think there's a maybe that's my sensibility maybe yeah it is a coping mechanism but, uh, yeah, it's not something that's contrived. It's not by design, but I did reflect that the first book is about a guy, an old man drinking himself to death. And then this is second book is about after death. And perhaps we don't think about it enough because it's it's waiting for all of us. And I've, I mean, since I had kids, I mean, it's quite a morbid thing, but I think about it all the time. I think about car accidents and, you know, my wife's a hypochondriac. So also during COVID time and dengue, there's constant threats everywhere. Here, that's what the Stoics uh, recommended that you do, that you do contemplate it, that it is waiting for you and whether you've done what you want. And I think having a deadline, and that's right there in the first page of Chinaman. when it's a, nothing more inspiring than a solid deadline. And this is the ultimate deadline, literally is. When you have a finite amount of time, you get things done. And same with novels as well. If you know you have to get it done in a couple of years, you'll do it. If you have infinite time, you don't. But, you know, seeing the humorous side of that, none of this will matter in uh, another hundred years. I don't think that's a bad way of looking at it.
1: No, I absolutely agree. And the idea of a deadline, I think, gets even sort of more real, you know, when your parents and your grandparents uh, start to get older. You know, you're confronted with that very literal deadline. So Mm. now move us to our rapid fire round. Uh, oh, well. which uh, sounds exactly like what it is. Uh, where do you write?
0: Um, Usually one place, at home, at my big desk with all my books and things around me. I can write on the road, but uh, I have to recreate those conditions. So
2: Great. Okay. Your favorite book written in second person, apart from your own?
0: I can't think of many, but uh, Bright Lights, Big City is the first one where I saw it done and done so brilliantly. But and choose your own adventure books, which are kids' books written in the second person. Oh, I love those.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. One South Asian writer who you admire?
0: Well, just one. Uh, Mohammed Hanif. I have to say, case of exploding mangoes. Really I love gir- that book. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, and the great guy, great guy, and a good friend. Yeah.
2: One place people must visit in Sri Lanka.
0: I would say Ussangoda. That's just my favorite place because it's. Deep South, Google it. Deep South, but it looks like Mars. The, the soil is red and it's peaceful and no one knows about it. Now everyone does. Yeah. Usangoda. <laughs>
1: yeah. One character from your books you wish you met in real life.
0: Kugaraja, <laughs> The terrorist match fixer guy? Though, no, I don't know. Might be dangerous. I'll say WG. WG, I'd love to have Iraq with WG and watch cricket. Which I kind of did for <laughs> three years. But yeah.
2: Um,
0: one word to describe
2: your family. Uh, Missy. <laughs> yeah, Missy. <laughs> thank you so much. This was
1: such a highlight. It's amazing speaking to you and congratulations once again on this fantastic win.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes. Thanks for having thank you, me. Thanks, Nara Michelle.
1: Thank a you. a pleasure. Okay. So here we are. We're at the end of yet another journey into the many worlds of Books and Beyond
2: with Bound. I'm Tara Khandelwal. I'm Michelle DeCosta. And this podcast is created by Bound, a company that helps you grow through stories. Find us at Bound India on all social media platforms.
1: So tune in every Wednesday if you live, eat and breathe books. And join us as we discover more revolutionary books and peek into the lives and minds of some truly brilliant authors from India and South Asia.
2: And don't forget to keep your love for stories alive for books and beyond.